You know, you probably knew this. I didn't know this necessarily, although now to think about it is completely obvious. But what I didn't know is that in science, there is a radical difference between a theory and a law. Again, it's obvious, I didn't know. There's a radical difference between those two things, and the difference is, is that a scientific theory is yet unproven, but a law is definitely proven. See, theories are just an educated guess, but laws are non-negotiable. For instance, quantum theory, pretty cool stuff, but it's not actually a law, it's just a theory. It is still unproven. There's a theory of relativity, Einstein kind of stuff, and it's pretty trippy and it's super interesting, but we don't know if it's actually true or not. It is still theoretical. And then there's evolution by natural selection, Darwinism, the theory of evolution. And despite what most intellectual elites in the world would have us to believe, it is not a law, it is only a theory, and it is definitely not true. And yet, having said that, there are definitely things in the universe, there are laws in the universe that are definitely, absolutely true. These are proven and non-negotiable and based on facts and knowledge and data and information that cannot be denied, like Newton's law of motion, for instance. That's a, that's a law. There's a law of thermodynamics. That's a, that's a fact that, that cannot be denied. There's the law of inertia. An object will maintain its velocity and direction only so long as no contrary force opposes that object. There's the law of celestial mechanics. There's the law of Red Sox failure. If there is a way for the Red Sox to lose, they will find a way to do so. You see, these are laws. Haha. These are laws. These are, these are non-negotiable. These are always true. You can bank on these. There's knowledge and facts and, and data and information. And you see, my point is, my point is, there are also spiritual laws. Proven, non-negotiable spiritual laws of which you need to be aware. Unchangeable laws of the soul that cannot be denied, that are based on real spiritual facts and data and knowledge that are absolutely true without exception, and a spiritual law that is always true without exception. It's exactly what John reveals in the text. See, more certain than gravity, more meaningful than math, more real than chemistry, John provides a spiritual law that explains exactly who does and does not have eternal life. And it is what I call the Johannine law of love. Here's the law. Where love for the world exists in the human soul, there is at the same time no true love for the Father. That's the law. In other words, if you love the world... And the things of the world, and you live for the things of the world, then you don't love God, and you need to be born again. That's the law. That's not a theory. That's, that's a law. A law of the soul that is always true, without exception. And we know it's true, because that's exactly what John says in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Why? 
For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a law. If someone loves the world, they don't actually love God. Now what John means by the world and what it means to love the world, we'll get there. But you see, the whole reason why John brought this up in the first place is because there were some wolves in grandma's clothing that crashed the party of the church. And by that I mean false teachers, clever con men who crept into the congregation, who brought with them this plausible sounding arguments about this supposed knowledge from Christ that called in some of the most, called into question some of the most sacred doctrines of the Christian faith. And they caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation and what it looks like to be a true believer. And you see, one of the things that they said that really stirred the pot and caused confusion was that they said that holiness and obedience were essentially optional. That life change and transformation was not necessary to prove that your salvation is authentic. That one could claim all of the saving benefits of Jesus Christ and yet be in love with the world and live exactly like the world. And John jams a stick into the spokes of that kind of thinking and he says, that's not true. Because where love for the world exists, you cannot and do not love God. What that means for us this morning is that whether you are a true believer or you are a make-believer, John's going to challenge us this morning. He's going to disrupt our rhythm. He's going to wrinkle our covers, so to speak. He's going to take the razor of truth and shave our souls against the grain and make us take a brutally honest look about what it is that we love the most because you remember what it is they say or what it is that he said, no one can love two masters. Either you will hate the one or you will love the other. You will be devoted to one or you will despise the other because the Johannine law of love clearly states you cannot love God and also love the world. That's the law. And so here we go. Here we go. Deep theological science at its very best. Let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see from our text two spiritual laws. Two spiritual laws that must shape our thinking as those who belong to Christ in a fallen world. Two spiritual laws that must shape our thinking as those who belong to Christ in a fallen world. And the first spiritual law is this. Number one, love for the Father and love for the world are completely incompatible. Love for the Father and love for the world are completely incompatible. Now, it's been a while since we've been in 1 John, but I do not want you to forget what he is doing here in chapter 2. In verses 1 and 2, John put Christ on display as the renaissance man of eternal life. Remember that? He exhibited Christ as a do-it-all Savior who has done it all for sinners like us, who in and by himself provides every remedy for the virus of sin. That's verses 1 and 2. But you see, in verses 3 through 17, on the other hand, John provides the validating, corroborating, confirming, authenticating evidence that proves that we have been saved by sovereign grace. 
And the question is, what is that evidence? What does John say? One verses 3 through 6, John says that our obedience, that highly flawed but ever-increasing obedience to the commands of Christ is proof that our salvation is real and that we are not imposters. But then in verses 7 through 11, John turns around and tells us that love is proof. That a life of love or habits of hate truly reveal the realm to which we, will, we belong, be it darkness or be it light. 12 through 14, the next, next signs of evidence. He says that knowledge of the Father, the power of God's word, victory over the evil one is proof and evidence that our faith is legitimate. And then, and then in verses 15 through 17, John tells us that the proof and the evidence of our faith is love and affection and allegiance to the Father over and above love and allegiance to the world exactly what he says in verse 15. Look at the text. It says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Why? For if anyone should love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's the law. The Johannine law of love that reveals exactly who does and does not have eternal life. And you notice that John begins with a warning, with a prohibition, something that you should never, ever do. And what you should never, ever do is stick a fork in a toaster. You should never drive with your eyes closed on the freeway, especially not in Texas. And you should never, ever love the world, nor the things in the world. You should never do that. Why? Because John tells us if someone loves the world, they don't actually love the Father. That the deepest, highest treasure of their life is not actually the God who created the world, but the world that God himself created. And what this means, what this means is that John is talking about something profoundly rooted in the depths of who we are, about our very cravings and longings and our desires and the very things that we love the most. In other words, what he's talking about here is what we actually worship and adore. And you can tell there are three questions, three questions we have got to get to the bottom of here. Question number one, and these are in your notes if you've got them. Question number one, what is the world? Question two, what are the things in the world? And question three, what does it mean to love the world? We've got to get to the bottom of this. And so question number one, what is the world? John says, do not love the world, he says. And we have heard this terminology. We've probably used this terminology at some time in our lives. That's worldly music. That's a worldly person. That's a worldly holiday. That's a worldly activity, right? And typically what we mean by that is that the object in question is lacking in spiritual quality. What we mean, if something is worldly, we typically mean that there's no way to love that thing and love God at the same time, that it's, that it's incompatible with the life of loving God as the treasure of the soul, and that's a little bit like what John means when he says, do not love the world, because what he doesn't mean, what he doesn't mean when he says the world, he doesn't mean the physical planet or God's creation in itself. He doesn't mean that, because you can enjoy 
waterfalls and oceans and beaches and sunsets and Milky Ways and mountains because those things were designed by God to display His very glory. You, you don't have to hate those things. You should enjoy those things. John also doesn't mean that we can't enjoy burgers or theme parks or sporting events or even movies. He doesn't mean that we can't enjoy shopping or secular jobs. You see, even in a fallen world, there is a way to enjoy creation and culture and not be guilty of what John says when he says, do not love the world. You can, instill, you can still supremely enjoy God and enjoy his gifts and not be an idolater. And of course, John doesn't mean people, does he? certainly doesn't mean that because even God himself loved the world and he sent his son to save the world. But what he does mean, what he does mean when he talks about the world, get this now, is the deadly, diabolical power at work behind the scenes. That's what he means. Like radiation, you understand there is this silent, invisible force. A sinister system of power that operates subtly in everything we see and hear. In media, in entertainment, in commercials, in Oprah, in politicians, and ads, and slogans, and books, and blogs, and songs, and movies, and radio talk shows. It's promoted through universities and sex ed curriculum and even innocent looking posters hanging in kindergarten classrooms. The world, you understand, is a fiendish world system, an unseen demonic force behind the God-ignoring, truth-despising, soul-destroying beliefs that we see promoted in everything we see and hear and now legislated by the government. And the reason why I say fiendish and demonic is because that's exactly what it is. John tells us in chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan is the God of this age. That doesn't mean that Christ doesn't have all authority because he most certainly does have all authority. But what it means is that he has temporarily granted to the prince of darkness to run his little scam that contaminates everything we see and hear. Because you feel it, don't you? You feel it. It's that relentless sales pitch that bombards us from every possible angle with a silent claim that true freedom and fulfillment can actually be found in something other than God. That ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction can be found in material, financial, or sexual delights. That a life of comfort and luxury, of that education and career and achievements and praise of men and being found attractive is the secret to the riddle of the meaning of life and that God only gets in the way of what you think will make you happy. Which is exactly the serpent's agenda at the tree, wasn't it? That's exactly what that was. I mean, the, you, you understand the issue was not the produce hanging on the branch. You understand it was a perspective he was offering. It was a point of view. 
a way of looking at the world and living your life. You see, the point was, the point was and is, is that true pleasure and liberation can be found in a life independent of the God who created you. That's the sales pitch. And the thing about that sales pitch is that it is, on the surface, totally persuasive. It's appealing and attractive and alluring and addicting. And the reason for that is because it appeals to the already existing flames of lust that burn within the human soul. We like what we hear. Because independent autonomy away from the living God is exactly what sinful man already wants. That is the world. That's what John means by the world. And it's embedded in everything that you see and hear, which John also says not to love. Because look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world, nor the things which are in the world. Meaning what? Well, that brings us to question two. What are the things in the world? And in verse 16, John names exactly what they are. He takes everything promoted by this evil world diabolical system and he groups them into three categories. And notice what he says. Everything in the world, he says, is number one, the lust of the flesh. Number two, the lust of the eyes. And number three, the arrogance of life. Everything that the evil world system behind the scenes offered is found in one of those three categories. And whatever those things mean, we'll see in the second spiritual law. But that brings us finally to question number three. What does John mean when he says, do not love the world? What does that mean? Well, think, think, think about that, world, that word love just for a minute. To love is what you prize. To love is what you treasure. What you love is what you give your life to and what you think about in solitude. To love is that to which you look to supply ultimate meaning, to supply your soul's deepest security and satisfaction. Therefore, when John says, do not love the world, he means do not be enchanted by the sales pitch. He means do not be suckered by the system's claim that there is anything out there more exhilarating or satisfying than the living God because there's totally not. Because to love the world, you understand, to love the world doesn't mean that you like living here. It doesn't mean that because you totally can and you should. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17 that God has richly supplied us with all things to be enjoyed. Cheeseburgers. Notice that burgers made it twice on the list. Cheeseburgers, parks, baseball, grandkids, marital love. You can love God supremely and still enjoy His gifts. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that you have a love affair with what it has to offer. That there is something that you love more instead of or in the place of God himself. That's the issue. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. 
Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. You see, that is what John is after right there. A heart that completely belongs to God. A heart in which everything you enjoy is like compost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, which means the urgent question of the hour this morning. In fact, one of the most important questions you've ever been asked in your entire life is, do you love the world? Have you bought into the sales pitch? That's what I'm asking. Have you been suckered by the system's claim that there is something out there more satisfying, more fulfilling than the living God? Is there something that you love more instead of or in the place of God? Because the question is, so what? So what if you do love the world? So what if you are enchanted by the world? So what? If you're suckered by the sales pitch, I mean, is this really that big of a deal? Is it really that big of a, big a deal to be what some might call a little worldly? The answer is yes, actually. It is a big deal. It's a really, really, really big deal because according to the Johannine law of love, you cannot love God and also love the world. Look what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Why, John? Why? You're just, just this old-fashioned, just soapbox guy, all been out of shape. You know, just, what, what, what is your deal? No, because he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's the law. No one can love two masters. You understand the human heart only has the capacity to give its affection to one ultimate treasure at a time. And you can't love both. And in John's theology, you either love the world and what it has to offer, or you love God and what He has to offer. And you can't love both. You just can't. Because look again at his language. Look at the text. If anyone should love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And by love of the Father, he means love for the Father. And by love for the Father, he means that God himself and all that he offers in his Son is a matchless treasure of infinite value to your life. In other words, John's point is clear and unmistakable, isn't it? If you are looking to the world and what it has to offer for ultimate meaning and significance, and satisfaction, bottom line, at the end of the day, you don't love God. And you need to be born again. Which brings us right back to the question, doesn't it? Do you love the world and the things of the world? Have you been enchanted by the sales pitch? Have you been suckered by the system's claim? that God could not make you happy without the addition of something else. John wants us all to wrestle with this. 
You understand the whole reason why this first John is in our Bibles because he wants us to know exactly who does and who does not have eternal life. And if you do not have eternal life, how to gain eternal life. And at this point, we're just begging for practical, aren't we? We're just begging for practical. And now that John has given us the law of love, we want to know exactly what this does and does not look like in someone's actual life. And that brings us to the second spiritual law. The second spiritual law, number two. Love for the pleasures of the world is plainly delusional. Love for the pleasures of the world is plainly delusional. You know, one of the saddest effects of sin in the fall is when people lose the ability to use their minds, isn't it? When someone has dementia, memory loss, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, I mean, you name it. I mean, it is crushing to see some soul created in the image of God become the shell of the person they used to be as they lose their grip on reality. Sad, it's tragic. But what is a thousand times more sad and tragic than even the deterioration of the human mind through disease is the willing madness and delusion of a person who seeks ultimate satisfaction in what can never, ever provide. When they pursue a path of suicidal pleasures that only lead to their own destruction, like the rich young ruler, remember? who walked away without salvation because he couldn't stand the thought, he couldn't bear the thought of walking away from his riches, not even for treasure in heaven. Like Demas in 2 Timothy 4, who's Demas? Co-worker, co-laborer of the Apostle Paul, the leader in the early church. He walked away from the faith because Paul said he loved this present. And like people you've known in your life who treated God's word like a bluff and then they called that bluff trying to gain the whole world and as a result they forfeited their very souls just like that. And the madness of making love to the world is precisely the spiritual law that John describes in verse 16. Look at the text. Starting in verse 15. Do not love the world, he says, nor the things in the world. If anyone should love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice, because, because everything which is in the world, namely the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the arrogance of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now you see the logic of his argument, right? And verse 16 explains why oil of love for the world cannot mix with the pure water of love for the Father. In fact, in verses 16 and 17, John gives two reasons, two reasons in verses 16 and 17, why love for the world and love for the Father are absolutely incompatible, mutually exclusive, and cannot exist in the same soul at the same time. So reason number one. Reason number one why one cannot love the world and love the Father is because, number one, the world only offers damaged goods. The world only offers damaged goods, or should I say, deadly goods. What I mean is the world only offers what God despises. 
what the diabolical system behind the scenes has to offer for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction as an alternative to God are only damaged goods that trade God for what is worthless. Everything the system claims brings ultimate satisfaction are absolutely incompatible and adversarial to everything the Father is and everything for which He stands. You can't love one and truly love the other. Which raises the question, what are the damaged goods offered by the system? And you know them well. And John names them, and there are three of them, and they're in the text. They are the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes and the arrogance of life. Let's look at these one at a time. And what he means by those, by the way, are sex, stuff, and self. Let's look at them one at a time. Damaged good number one, John talks about the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. And what he means, listen carefully, what he means is the lust that comes from the flesh. The lust that originates from the flesh. And by flesh, he doesn't mean the meat that covers the bones, but what he means is our fallen nature inherited from Adam. When the Bible describes our flesh, you understand what that's describing is our humanly incurable corruption that exists in every human heart. The flesh is our mutilated desires for what God has forbidden, which is not limited to, but it especially includes sexual lust, which is exactly what John's referring to here. And the lust of the flesh, you understand, it is lots of things, but primarily it is thirst for forbidden sexual pleasures, which is precisely what the world believes and sells as the pinnacle of life, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it what that whole show The Bachelor is all about? Some hot, chiseled, wealthy guy who gets to freely sample from a harem of women who are just throwing themselves at this guy, and we are supposed to think that, that right there, that is the pinnacle of pleasure. That the gratification of your deepest sensual erotic desires, that is where ultimate satisfaction is found, or at least that's what we are led to believe. And John's point is, his words, not mine, is that if you see ongoing, unrepentant patterns of lust in your life, that you do not love the Father. It could be porn, it could be adultery, whatever. No matter what it is that someone's claim, what someone claims, you do not love God if your life is filled with lust. And I know they hit like a ton of bricks. But the question is, is that ex- not exactly why Jesus Christ has come? Was not freeing sinners from the bewitching pleasures of sin the very point of the incarnation? Was not the very mission of the Messiah to melt the chains of iniquity which had previously held us in captivity? That was exactly the mission of the Messiah. And so, and so, if you are an unbeliever and slave to your sin, or you are a believer who struggles with your sin, 
the answer is exactly the same. Faith in Christ is the answer. Why? Because faith in Christ doesn't merely mean that we believe, merely believe in the facts of history, but faith in Christ means we have access to his very life, which frees us from the power of sexual sin in Christ. You don't have to be, and you must not be, the puppet of sexual lust. Damage good number two. Damage good number two, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes, which is interesting, isn't it? That two out of the three damaged goods that the system offers are described as lust, which means same lust, two different manifestations. And in this case, it is the lust of the eyes. You see, if the first lust manifests itself in the insatiable desire to feel things, this is the insatiable desire to get things, to have things, to acquire things. I mean, you understand, this is really interesting, that the organ of sight, that our eyeballs are inseparably connected to our souls, aren't they? That what we look at reveals and determines our spiritual health. What we look at reveals and determines our spiritual health. It's like a dirty two-way street. What we see and look upon inflames lust in our hearts, and the already existing flames of lust in the heart dictate and determine what we look at. It's exactly what John means by the lust of the eyes, and this is the world's insatiable stampede to have and to acquire, as if the meaning of life is found in what you accumulate or accomplish. As if the black hole of the soul can actually be filled by creative, created things instead of by the creator himself, which is precisely the hellish sales pitch of the world. And again, the thing about that sales pitch is that it is so, on the surface, utterly persuasive. It is on the surface. It's really tempting to think that a better title, that a higher salary, a bigger house, a new face, a better body, nicer clothes, more respect and notoriety, that those have the power to reach down deep enough to fill the chasm of the human soul. And they don't. They just don't. And I know we say we know that. But do we actually live that? Because John's point here, and it's a real whopper, But John's point is that if we see ongoing, unrepentant patterns of greed and materialism and coveting and stinginess and living for the praise of men, that in the end you do not love the Father. Because you can't. You you just can't love money and love God all at the same time. For the love of money is the root of all the evils. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who desire to get rich, Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, fall into temptation and a snare. 
and to many harmful and ruinous lusts which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Paul, John, is not playing games when he talks about the lust of the eyes. He's dead serious. And he pleads with us. He pleads with us through his pen to take an honest to God look at our very souls. And so the question is, do you see in your life lust of the eye? you see that? The question is, how would you know if you did? Well, what, what does it look like to have the, the lust of the eyes in, in actual life? And there's lots and lots of different manifestations of what this could look like. Here are three. Three manifestations of the lust of the eyes. One, if you're willing to suffer spiritually so that you can thrive financially. If you're willing to suffer spiritually so that you can thrive Financially, that's textbook exhibit A, lust of the eyes. In other words, choosing work or making money as a priority over the local church and God's word. That's exactly what lust of the eyes is. Number two, when someone else's blessing disturbs your contentment. When someone else's blessing disturbs your contentment, in other words, this manifests itself in envy and anger or obsession with the income or blessing of other people. And if you have that, if you have envy or anger or obsession with the income of other people, then that is a really good indicator of the spiritual pulse of what it is that you actually love the most. And then number three, when we think more about treasure on earth than we do about treasure in heaven. We can, we can tell that we are in dangerous ground when we think way more about treasure on earth rather than treasure in heaven, especially, especially if treasure in heaven doesn't even appeal to us. I mean, if we're always dreaming about the next car, the next update, the next upgrade, the next toy, the next purchase, the next way to gain more income and God's global plan of reaching eternal souls with the gospel doesn't even enter your mind. I think John would look at you with deep concern and say, I don't know if you actually love the Father. I don't know. Which is staggering. Isn't it staggering to hear this? But the thing is, you know. You know how to make the glitter of gold strangely dim, don't you? In other words, the cure for the lust of the eyes is not to deny your desires for treasure but instead even to indulge your desires for treasure in the highest treasure that could possibly exist, namely in God Himself. But you see, only the long-term pleasures of the glory of God and fellowship with Jesus Christ are enough to destroy this insatiable desire for short-term gratification. In other words, if you, want, if you are to be taken with God, you will not be tempted to worship that which is not God. And how you be taken with God is by seeing how he has revealed himself in the sacred text. That's how. And yes, I do mean reading the Bible, but I don't mean hasty reading. I don't mean rushed 
reading. I don't mean I don't mean any of that. Rather, I mean serious, rigorous meditation upon holy and heavenly truths until they become sweet and beautiful to your soul. I mean slow and steady crockpot contemplation of the sacred text. I mean full scuba gear plunging yourself daily into the ocean of God's word, the depths of God's word, drinking and drinking and drinking out of the ocean of God's revelation. Mark my words, there is no other way to sever the root of greed and discontentment. You've got to see who God is. And so make a plan, make a priority, plead with God to acclimate your appetite for the feast of Holy Scripture, and then you will see your appetite for the things of this world begin to diminish. Which brings us to damaged good number three. We've seen two damaged goods so far, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and number three, the arrogance of life. The arrogance or, or boastful pride of life. In fact, if you wanted to expand this out a little bit, you could call this the man-centered, narcissistic obsession with, with what one thinks makes them significant. Because the word pride there that John uses, that's not the normal word for pride in the New Testament. Rather, this term has the baggage of bragging, of boasting, of pretension, of arrogance, that is the things to which we look to feel validated and to feel exalted over other people. But you see, what's really interesting is the word to which that word is attached, namely the word life, the pride of life or the, the arrogance of life. And, and some of your English translations even get to this, but this is the same word used in chapter 3, verse 17, when John talks about the goods of this world, that is the possessions of this world, the commodities of this world, the belongings of this world, the means of substance. And what John means here is not the things that we need to survive, but get this now, he's talking about all the things we use in life as criteria to feel superior to other people. It could be our income. It could be our house. It could be our just being one of those people really insanely good at life and you've got it all together could be success, especially if we fit in America's favorite story of someone who beat the odds and rose to the top. That's a big deal for Americans. could be our title, our talents, some kind of legacy that we've had, our reputation, our position, symbols of status, car you drive, whatever. could be our stance on morality, political views, education, the degrees you have, maybe even your physique and good looks, maybe an insanely good head of hair. You have to understand there are more signs of pride in life than there are flavors of ice cream at Baskin and Robbins. So the question is, do you see any flavors of arrogance in your life? Do you see it? Because John's point here is that you can't be an arrogant person and still love God. You don't love God if you're a bragger, that's his point. Now understand what I mean. I don't mean that you had a prideful thought one day. 
I don't mean that you like how your biceps look in the mirror. I'm not, I don't mean that. Rather, rather, at the end of the day, what John is really concerned about is the criteria that we use to feel exalted and significant over other people. And in the end, get this now, in the end, to hog the glory that belongs to God alone. Don't you see what the arrogance of life ultimately is, is to be a glory thief driven by a passion to feel exalted. And if God has to receive less glory in the process, well, then so be it. So be it. The question is, do you see any of that in your life? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the arrogance of life. Do you see any of that? Any of that? In other words, sex, stuff, and self. Have you bought into the sales pitch is what I'm asking. Have you been suckered by the system's claim? Because again, again, the the problem with these things, John says, that the reason why you can't love these things and love God at the same time is because of what he says at the end of verse 16. Look at the text. Don't love the world, he says, nor the things in the world. If anyone should love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why, John? How, How can you say that? Because, he says, everything which is in the world, skip to the end, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you hear his logic? It's really strange. It's even what some might call a circular argument. Don't love the world, John says. Why? Because it's from the world. That That doesn't make any sense. Unless, unless, what? the world offers for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction emerges from the sewer of Satan himself, which is exactly the case. But after all that, there's a second reason. We're almost done here. There's a second reason why one cannot love the world and actually love the Father. The first reason, you saw, because the world only offers damaged goods. The second reason is because the world is on the brink of going extinct. The reason why you can't love God and love the world at the same time, is because the world is on the brink of going extinct. Look at verse 17. You can't love the world and love God. Why? Notice, because the world is passing away and it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. I mean, you you see it, right? What John supplies in verse 17 is the logical explanation for why it is so nonsensical to love the things that come from the unseen diabolical force behind the scenes. And why is it so nonsensical? Why is it so crazy? Because, because the world and its lust is passing away. Meaning what? Meaning you would never bet on a horse to win a race with a broken leg. You would never sail across the ocean in a leaky boat. You would never invest in a company that's going out of business. In the exact same way, you should never, ever seek your supreme satisfaction in a kingdom about to be obliterated and replaced, which is exactly what John is saying. You understand the current unseen diabolical system at work in the world, managed and run by the evil one, will soon meet its violent and bloody end. 
Christ said in John 16.33, I have overcome the world. Chapter 2, verse 8, John said, the darkness is passing away. Chapter 2, verse 13, he said, you have overcome the evil one. And Revelation 12, 12 says that the devil has great wrath. Why? Because he knows he only has a little time left. The point is, the signs are clear and the word is out. The current world system operating and the evil one who runs it is going out of business and he knows it. And you know it too. So therefore, John reminds us that it is the epitome of stupidity to seek our highest joy from a world that is passing away, one that will be replaced by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any sense to hand out hors d'oeuvres on the Titanic. Because that thing is going down. But what does make sense, in fact, the only thing that makes any logical sense whatsoever is exactly the kind of life that John describes at the end of verse 17. Look at the text. The world is passing away and its lust. Here it is. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And there it is. That's, that's the only logical life that makes any sense whatsoever. Namely, a life of doing the will of God. And believe it or not, thinking about the will of God, the will of God is not some mystical, hard-to-find Easter egg hunt. It's not. The will of God is not some magic eight ball guessing game. This is not at all some mysterious Indiana Jones interpret the sacred clues found in the temple kind of thing. Rather, rather, the will of God is really as simple as opening the sacred text and reading what is there on the page. That is what God wants for you. That is God's will for you. God's greatest desires and passions for your life have already, already been expressed in a 600,000 word document called the sacred text of Holy Scripture. And His will for you, what He wants for you, is to love His glory, to love His Son, to love His Word, to love His mission, to love His church, and to love the people that He has sovereignly placed into your life. And you notice, you notice that people who live like that doesn't mean they earn their way there. They reveal, they reveal what's true about them. But people live like that, abide forever. And by abide forever, he means live forever. And by live forever, he means live forever with God in paradise. In other words, he's talking about eternal life. Anything else lived for God and his glory, for his will, through his word, is crazy and ludicrous. Let me finish then with an exhortation. An exhortation to those who might not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you don't belong to Christ this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you are still unpersuaded by the claims of Christ in the Bible, I don't, I don't know what it is exactly that compelled you to be here. I don't know what it is that compelled you to watch this. But I'm really glad that you did. And if today is to be your last day on the planet before you step off into eternity, I want it to be with the gospel ringing in your ears and my arms 
around your legs, as it were, begging you to repent and believe because you remember. You remember what Christ said in Matthew 16, don't you? See, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? He asked. What's the answer? What's the answer? Nothing. Even if you could gain the whole world and not have Christ, you have gained nothing. Why? Because you weren't made for this present world alone. Thomas Brooks the Puritan said, The world and you must part, or you and Christ will never meet. But you see, you were made by God, for God, and yet your sins have separated you from God. And yet this very God sent his divine son to the planet as a literal historical human being, and he lived on the earth. And he didn't just live, he died. And the death that he died, he died for sinners in their place. And he didn't just stay dead, but he lived triumphing over the grave, ascending into heaven. And right now he stands at the right hand of the Father ready to save, full of pity, full of power, full of love, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who calls out to him for mercy and grace. And so if you don't know him this morning, won't you call out to him for mercy and grace? Because the implication of the law of love is that loving God as the treasure of our souls is the very life you were created to live. And that is no bluff. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for being honest with us. We don't always appreciate honesty. We love comfort, but honesty we're not always so sure about, Lord. And, and yet you love us too much. You love us too much to keep the gloves on. You love us too much to not speak honestly and forthrightly about who we are and what we actually need. And what drives you to say hard things in your word is love. Always love. Love compels you, O oh God, to be tough. I pray, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who have deep, unbelievable thirst for you. Oh Lord, it's not, you never seek to guilt us into doing the right thing. You never seek to manipulate us, Lord. You seek to woo us and to allure us and to help us see that in you, in your Son, is everything we actually truly need. That you are the bread of life. You are the fountain of living waters. And so wean us off the lesser, inferior pleasures of this world. And help us to live lives that reflect you and display you and effectively used by you to advance your plan always and only for the matchless glory of your Son in whose name we pray.